Hi, and welcome to this audio commentary on Raging Bull, the 1980 movie directed by Martin Scorsese. My name is Rob Caravaggio, robcaravaggio.blogspot.com, and if you'd like to synchronize your copy of Raging Bull to this audio commentary, we'll give you a countdown in just a moment to help you do that. In the meantime, what you can do is locate the very start of the movie. We're watching a Region 1 DVD. And just before the start of the film proper, there is a United Artists logo that comes just before the opening title sequence. When that United Artists logo fades to black, hit pause, and momentarily that will allow us all to hit play together and watch the movie in perfect, synchronized harmony. Okay, if you've taken a moment to sync up to the United Artists logo just as it's faded to black, let's all hit play together when I say go. Three, two, one, go baby. It's interesting that we get these um, producer and director credits and, of course, De Niro's credit there before the start of the actual opening title sequence, which uh, set the elegiac and um, melancholic tone, I think, of the movie to come. Um, Now, the... The ropes there that are in the foreground, um, in this opening title sequence, uh, Kathy Moriarty's credit just came on the screen and went away. Here's Frank Vincent's credit and uh, five other people on the screen now, uh, as De Niro's shadow box is there on the left. Uh, I always thought this opening title sequence is sort of um, like so many things in the movie, um, just the way it's in that beautiful slow-mo and the, the smoke, uh, the fog that's uh, in the frame. Uh, This is sort of the way Jake sees himself, even when he's past his prime, even when he's washed up. This is how the character, Jake LaMotta, in the movie, uh, sees himself. And, uh, well, that's how I've always uh, kind of looked at this opening title sequence. And I love how the ropes in the foreground there, as I was about to say, uh, sort of are reminiscent and remind me of, um, what do you call those lines on sheet music, uh, bars or where they put the notes, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about music. Thelma Schoonmaker's credit just passed. Um, yeah, I, I really, I don't think that's too cute to think that they, I mean, be, and I say that because this, uh, Muscagney classical music piece that really gives the opening titles its feel, uh, it, that wonderful, uh, feeling that hits you in the gut when you watch this opening title sequence. Uh, that was Scorsese. Uh, it was a piece of music. Uh, there's the screenplay credit for Schrader and Mardik Martin. They did not work together. They worked separately, and I'll talk about the development of the screenplay in a, in a minute. If you have the uh, Anniversary Edition DVD like I have, you have lots of special features explaining the development of the script. Uh, so I'll try not to, uh, once again, I'll try not to tread over uh, ground that's been covered. There's Scorsese's credit. But uh, I'll just, uh, I will go into, uh, because I am uh, such an admirer of Schrader, I will go into uh, where he sort of came from and and how this opening of the movie uh, sort of is different from what Schrader wrote in his draft, but uh, is sort of captures what he was going for in a sense. Now, Schrader had a a piece of music that um, 
that he calls for at the beginning of the screenplay. As we see uh, De Niro for the first time fattened up, we, we see the transformation, the physical transformation between the in-shape De Niro and the fat De Niro right away in the movie. When the movie came out, it was a big reveal, and I like how it just gets it out of the way here uh, in this dressing room that we will find ourselves in at, at the end of the movie. Schrader's uh, script was much more of a social network uh, kind of thing that, that um, Sorkin does with cutting back and forth in time, and uh, the revisions that um, Scorsese and De Niro did on that script to get to the final shooting script, uh, the revisions they did to Schrader's script, sort of left left it bookended with um, uh, this dressing room stuff at the beginning and at the end, and uh, took out all of the cutting back and forth in time. So most of the movie happens as a, a, I love this shot there, it cuts to him in the ring getting socked. Uh, in the Jimmy Reeves fight. I won't go into too much of the boxing, the real world, um, uh, LaMotta's career, and and, uh, as we see this wonderful dolly in. So stylized. Um, I won't go into, because I'm a sports fan, I won't go into too much of the boxing uh, minutia, but um, because Scorsese didn't really give a shit about it himself. But uh, this Jimmy Reeves fight was, I think, the 15th or 16th fight in LaMotta's career, and he was uh, really a well-known contender, a successful pro fighter at this point. And uh, he lost a controversial bout uh, in Reeves' hometown, which is what we're seeing here. Uh, it is a low moment in his career before he uh, meets Vicky, um, uh, just before he meets Vicky. But uh, he... he uh, gets a rematch later on against Reeves. And um, you can see the actor playing Jimmy Reeves. Uh, the, the actors who play boxers are very convincing in the way they move, and uh, like, like the Rocky movies and some other boxing films of the time. Uh, and, uh, well, before I get into these boxing sequences and, and, and things, uh, there are plenty of them for me to uh, sort of explore while we do this. I, I just want to... Um, go back to what I was saying about Schrader's uh, script. The piece of music he calls for is a very different piece of music at that uh, at the beginning for that opening title sequence, and Scorsese uh, picked that um, Muscagny, Muscagny, the name of the Italian composer. Uh, I guess he had, uh, the story is that he had liked that piece of music and thought that it fit, and um, when you see it, uh, I've never played uh, Schrader's choice against the images of that opening title sequence, but um, I think it's hard to argue with what Scorsese uh, used, that, that Muscagney music. It's just so, so, so beautiful. And uh, I really, as I said, I do think it captures the uh, the feel and the, the melancholic and, and the, the feeling of tragedy of... Um, uh, of real, real tragedy of this man's life as depicted in the film. Um, so just a, a beautiful, beautiful choice there uh, among many. This is, um, oh, and, and there, as you heard in the dialogue, uh, perhaps, or saw the um, subtitles, um, this would have been Lamada's first loss. Uh, he was not a knockout. Uh, I, I promise not to go into too much boxing. Uh, you see his brother very much in his life, played by Pesci. I, I won't go, I won't go into too much boxing. Uh, I know people get annoyed when you geek out about sports and cars and and st- which I want to do sometimes, but 
I love these images, the chair flying into the ring, the riot that breaks out. There's going to be a great stuntman work, uh, 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 a man being flung out of the ring in the riot, landing in the crowd, almost a crowd surfing style. Uh, these people being trampled. Uh, this was a real riot. Uh, I don't know if it was like uh, looked like this or not, if it was this this much chaos. But uh, there really truly was a, a riot uh, at this fight uh, or... or um, it did get out of control, and then we have this wonderful shot of this organist backlit. There's the stuntman flying, doing a flip into that crowd. Those are probably stuntmen in the crowd who, who caught him, too. That, that would all be uh, part of the stunt work. And as we have this walk and talk now with Frank Vincent and Pesci, who, of course, were uh, friends and uh, compadres, uh, so to speak. Uh, they... Uh, they had a nightclub act together of some kind, and uh, Pesci was an actor and a performer, but, but he almost had given up on acting before uh, getting cast in this role by Sis Corman, who did the, uh, who did the casting work. That uh, Some great casting work here, finding Kathy Moriarty. It was just perfect. But anyway, yeah, that was a, that was a real fight, and they really did, according to uh, the historical record, they really did play the Star Spangled Banner to 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 calm the crowd down. Uh, who knows how much it worked. Now, uh, apart from the boxing scenes and a couple of the big scenes of violence or, or vituperative, uh, you know, anger that De Niro has, I love that slow dolly in to the to the wife and her nonplussed look, her annoyed look. Uh, Lamada's first wife here. Um. These, uh, what I was going to say is these are the scenes for me where uh, De Niro as an actor really shines as a, as a, he was at this time already uh, a highly respected screen performer had, had won Oscars uh, for, for um, uh, Godfather, I believe Godfather two. And um, there's the famous line coming up here. You want your steak? Uh, I got in an argument with someone once about this thing. Uh, very funny. Uh, this, this is one of the funniest movies. Uh, you know, it's sort of like Mulholland Drive. People don't, um, when they think of the funniest movies they've ever seen, they don't often don't name it um, because it's not a comedy. But the moments of comedy in it are very, very, very nicely wrought. Um, I want to explain what I, how I sort of read this opening scene or this opening dialogue scene in this domestic uh, uh, sort of... Uh, walk up that Jake lives with his first wife. Uh, but but uh, just to finish that anecdote, I got in an argument with someone who liked the movie very much once because the interpretation of what he means by, uh, he says the steak is, being, don't overcook the steak, he tells the wife. You overcook it, it defeats its own purpose. And uh, this person uh, had a whole thing. My whole thing was what he means by that is the steak's purpose is to be eaten is to be eaten and enjoyed. And so if you overcook it, the steak is defeating its purpose and its existence to be eaten. This person had a whole different, oh, no, no, he means this. And this is very good, the hand gestures. And um, if you grew up uh, Italian, I mean, uh, my name is, my last name is such that uh, you, you can, people can tell that I'm Italian. But if you grew up in New York, uh, in uh, Queens or the Bronx. I mean, I mean, I didn't grow up in the forties, but this is, this is very much, I mean, this shouting out the window, I mean, arguing, this is all uh, the wife beater shirt, so to speak. Uh, this is all very, very true to life, uh, at least in my childhood. 
what I think is going on here in this opening dial, uh, this opening scene in Jake's uh, apartment where he lives with his first wife, is a it's a wonderful encapsulation of the psychological patterns and the drama that that will play out throughout the movie and the the uh, sort of the syndromes you might say that Jake Lamotta, the character as portrayed in the movie. Uh, uh, recreates throughout his life. Uh, he, he uh, you know, a therapist might say he, he recreates the same patterns of his relationships to women and to friends and his paranoia. It's all encapsulated in this first scene. Look at what's going on here. Uh, he's preoccupied with his, um, his uh, boxing career. That's uh, why he's um, uh, all that braggart uh, kind of talk, that tough talk he's doing while he's waiting and uh, at the beginning of the scene while he's waiting for the wife to finish cooking the steak. He's uh, describing uh, that frustration. Uh, then he makes a mountain out of a molehill with this whole steak business. Uh, you bother me about a steak, you bother me about a steak. And, uh, and he, his anger erupts into this huge argument with the wife. Uh, it becomes violent or near violent. He throws things. He, he becomes enraged. Uh, this is obviously the paradigm that, that plays out throughout the movie. Then what happens? The brother, Joey, played by uh, Joe Pesci. Uh, walks in and tries to be the voice of reason or ha- tries to have a calming influence on Jake. And he does to some extent. And you have the dialogue scene here that's playing out. Uh, and then uh, in between all that, you have this neighbor, Larry, yelling at him to be quiet. And uh, Jake says something about, I'm going to kill you and that dog. You know, he's yelling out the window. Uh, also, you know, people, people, um, calling him an animal, this whole thing with him being an animal. Later on, he'll have that line, I'm not an animal, when he's in the jail cell. Well, he, Larry, this neighbor through the window, calls him, uh, you animal, and, and, uh, and uh, he takes offense. Jake takes offense and says, who's an animal? You're an, you know. So all of, and, and all of this is playing out in this first scene. It's all encapsulated in, uh, it, this isn't the first scene. I keep calling it the first scene. It's the first big dialogue scene. Uh, but notice how this is all playing out. It's wonderful uh, writing, wonderful writing here. And I'll, I'll, I will talk about the screenplay, screenplay, pardon me, like I said. But um, I just wanted to say that, that this is such, such a beautiful uh, setup, you might say, for what we're going to see in the movie. And, and that's not even all of it, you know. What's going to happen here? This, this um, heart-to-heart that he's having with his brother, uh, he, he, you know, Jake, Jake is often thinking of unreasonable things. It's kind of hard, a stretch too. Um, you know, uh, well, not really. He, I mean, Jake knows full well why he can't fight Joe Lewis, as he said a moment ago. I like this. Not too many more times you're going to have, <laughs> uh, very funny. He knows why he can't fight Joe Lewis, even though the weight classes weren't as chopped up, uh, as they are today. Nowadays, if you're a 147-pound welterweight, you're fighting someone who weighs approximately the same within three or four pounds as you, uh, at, at fight time anyway, in professional prize fighting. 
back then it was lightweight, middleweight, heavyweight, and you could be fighting someone who was uh, outweighed you by a considerable number of pounds and who was way stronger. And so uh, people like LaMotta, Ray Robinson, who we see in the film, who is very lanky and wiry and, and, and could have a lot of torque in his punches because of that. And, and uh, he, they were, you know, you would be often fighting someone who was just plain stronger than you. And, and there are measures now with the weight classes to prevent uh, such mismatches in, in today's prize fighting world. Here I am talking about boxing. But I, but anyway, the whole thing with Joe Lewis, he knows why he can't fight Joe Lewis. Um, but it's this unreasonable um, uh, yearning that he has that characterizes so much of, of who this man is as portrayed in the movie. And notice that the interaction with his brother soon becomes uh, violent. Uh, even though it's it's Jake telling his brother to hit him, he he wants to show that he can take punishment, that he can, uh, he he can, he can. The real Lamada was in fact like this. He 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 was convinced that nobody could hurt him, and the whole "you never got me down, Ray" that he he says to goad Ray Robinson is a real thing. That uh, you know Lamada felt that he'd gotten the better. You know he fought the best fighter in the world, uh, although he wouldn't admit Ray was the best. Uh, and uh, the guy never got him down. He was he was beaten, but not but but not uh, not leveled so to speak. And, and so he wanted to prove that he could take punishment. And, and the, the reason LaMotta and the reason this movie, one of the reasons this movie is so well respected, I think, is the, the character of LaMotta is so wonderful because he can take a lot of physical punishment. He had a great chin in real life. And he, you know, they say in the movie he had a head like rock. He's so thin-skinned emotionally, so wrought with paranoia, so or freighted with this anxiety and and taking offense at everything. So he he can't take what the world dishes out. He can take the punches, the physical punches, but not uh, not the other elements of being a, a human being. The more emotional uh, uh, things, uh, shall we say. So it's a wonderful character. Uh, this movie, as we see um, them finishing their training session here, uh, that, that body uh, protector uh, that his brother's wearing, Joey's wearing, he will wear it at a different point in the movie than the famous Steadicam shot. <laughs> it, so you see the, uh, the, the real uh, frustration the brothers have with each other. The, the real Joey in real life, uh, the, Jake's brother, was a fighter himself. Uh, you don't really get that in the movie. Uh, those kids jumping off the building into the pool, uh, and all of this wonderful texture, the Pepsi Cola sign there, the, you know, the, the sort of accoutrement around the pool. Um, this is all nicely, uh, very beautifully realized by the production designers recreating this time in history. Um, especially the clothes. I think they get the clothes right, it seems to me. Uh, more so than other movies who, um, it, it looks more like caricatures of, of this time rather than the way people actually dressed. And, uh, even those little snacks and bottles of soda on the table in front of them here, uh, it all just looks right. So this is the first time, uh, Jake, uh, sees Vicky and, uh, it's not hard to see what Scorsese's going for here. We see all of these characters, not just Vicky. There's Salvi putting his sunglasses on, played by the great Frank Vincent. Uh, one of uh, the most delightful. I'm always delighted when I see him in something. I loved him on The Sopranos. And 
I think I said a lot about him in our Goodfellas commentary. This, by the way, is part of a, a series we're going to be doing on Scorsese um, that was recommended by uh, one of our more stalwart uh, uh, listeners uh, who emails us. and uh, We'll be doing series on certain directors and um, sort of exploring movies and their work. And, and Glenn, uh, our listener, suggested why not, uh, why not start with Scorsese uh, since we already had done a Scorsese film and I don't know. It just it just felt right, um, and uh, felt like I wanted to start with a director who people really liked, and and lots of different people like Scorsese for lots of different reasons. So there's Kathy Moriarty, a nice shot of her, that wonderful hairdo. So we see all these people. I mean, the 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 camera movements when they're f- photographing Salvi and these these sort of low-level gangsters are are sort of different and in a way they're they're sort of peering at them and and sliding around them in in a way that when we see Kathy Moriarty we see it as Jake sees her it's a the the camera Michael Chapman's camera is is, um, zooming and moving at different a slightly different speed and it's more elegant and um you notice this uh, another good setup and payoff thing here where Jake is um asking his brother if if he had um, had sex with Vicky, who was 15, and he says, no, where am I going to take her, Copacabana? So he's preoccupied with the brother and anyone having sex with Vicky, even before he's in a relationship with her. Uh, that'll come back later in the movie. And the idea of them being at the Copacabana, you know. There's that leg movement that, that we'll see later on as kind of a motif with Vicky, uh... Some people think there's a water motif in the movie too, uh, with with Vicky and. Um, now this whole thing with the the wife, uh, Jake's uh, neglected first wife here. Uh, this whole thing with him going out and where you going and uh, she calls him a guinea there. Uh, uh, I think the I think the idea there is the wife is Jewish. Um, not that Jewish people use uh, ethnic epithets in any with any uh, more frequency than anyone else. I just I I remember that her. Oh yes, he he calls her a Jew, cunt, which is, uh, rather ungallant. Uh, but but uh, this is a nice shot here of her out the window and them walking away. Uh, the the whole idea of the wife getting angry when the the husband goes out. We see we saw that in Goodfellas too. There's a scene there. Now these, I mean, the, the way he cuts into that sign to the to the more relevant part of that sign after we have the the wider shot of the sign, you know, is one of the things that Raging Bull does that I, I think is one of the reasons why it's so influential. These kind of scenes, by the way, um, and I'll I'll say something about the influence and the why it's held in such uh, good repute uh, in a second. But these kinds of scenes, this sort of party or banquet or dance hall atmosphere with a band playing, a smoke-filled bar, lots of people socializing. I mean, this is a this is a big production day if you're on a movie set. I mean, you've got a lot of extras here. They, they, some of them are dancing. Some of them are sitting. They all have to be costumed to some degree of uh, detail. Um, it's a big room. Um, you're shooting in black and white. It's probably hot in there. There's John Turturro on the left. Uh, 
And I think Scorsese excels at, I mean, you see it in Mean Streets and movies, uh, movies uh, even like uh, Goodfellas and De- The Departed. You know, you, you, he, he really likes that hand motion the priest makes. He really is good at shooting this kind of stuff and um, making it work. The hand motion the priest makes, the sign of the cross to bless the table, is, um, is another sort of physical motif that we'll see it when Lamada's cut man is putting uh, Vaseline or... Uh, I don't know if they used actual Vaseline at the time, but uh, whatever kind of ointment he's putting uh, to uh, on Lamada's face during a fight, it will be that kind of, uh, you know, the, much has been written and said about Scorsese's use of Catholic iconography. and and um, Although I don't think it's something he's doing with a whole lot of deliberate... Th- I mean, yes, he, he did study or, or intended to become a Catholic priest early in his life, uh, Martin Scorsese, but um, it's not it's not so much that I think that, you know this is a story about a certain time in history and and Italian Americans uh, in New York at a certain time uh, and, and you just you're gonna have the Catholic iconography it's there you know these crosses that are in the bedrooms and and the rosary hanging from a mirror and stuff you know I mean that's um. You know, if you've ever been in a an Italian grandmother's home, uh, it's just it's just there. It's just what's there. It's not even something they they think about. It's how they decorate the house. Um, it's not explained in the movie. This whole altercation, uh, I think, on one of the commentary tracks, maybe it's Scorsese himself who says it, but it's not explained uh, in the commentary, or or rather in the movie. But uh, it is a it is an altercation supposed to be an altercation between two different factions or groups or ethnic groups of Italians uh, uh, quarreling among one another. And uh, there's a symbolic thing, of course, where uh, sort of uh, trouble or conflict follows Jake everywhere he goes. Or, uh, but also it's just it adds attention a to what's going on. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of good screenwriting that you have something something else going on in the scene that that is kind of backgrounded by, you know, it's very nicely done. This is a oneer until they start doing two shots through the fence. Uh, the cinematographer was Michael Chapman, uh, a very, very. Um, uh, I've always liked his work. Uh, his his uh, commitment to uh, a certain kind of visual simplicity with respect to uh, you see it here a lot with respect to lighting and, and uh, black and white but uh, you know a certain kind of um, you know story focused approach to um, shooting dialogue and I like Michael Chapman a lot he's uh, I guess they based this uh, initial uh, encounter between Jake and Vicky through the fence uh, on the Eva Marie St. Marlon Brando encounter uh, where they're walking and he picks up her glove in uh, on the waterfront. Brando, she drops her glove. Brando picks it up as if he's going to give it back. But instead, he's just playing with it. And it creates this tension uh, and this this sort of cool thing. Um, there's Kathy Moriarty, who... Uh, on the special features, I saw footage of her. It must have been taken in the mid-aughts, maybe, 2005 or something. Uh, uh, footage of her talking about her experience with the film, and uh, she still looks great. <laughs> you know, she's obviously a middle-aged woman now, still looks great. Before I talk about um, this, the film's stature and why I think it's actually gone up in stature with the sight and sound poles and everything, and why it's so beloved... Uh, uh, I should say something about this little mini golf date they're on. 
Now, some people um, read a whole lot of symbolic things. Scorsese is very good with these kinds of stuff. You know, that, that he puts, he slows down the speed of the frame. You know, it's slightly slow motion when she looks back at Jake there and shakes her head. It's just that very subtle dreamlike thing uh, that he does. Um, I don't like De Niro's white shirt here against that white sky, uh, or white in black and white, anyway. Uh, uh, you know, she's wearing white, he's got that white t-shirt. I, I don't think that, I don't know why, maybe it was hot out or something, but you should have him and you've got no, uh, you know, you got to have a, a black stripes on the shirt or so. like, this is a nice black and white uh, uh, jacket he's wearing here because it, it pops on black and white film. Uh, this is a little better, but maybe it was hot out or it was a, a late take that they were doing there that got in the film. Anyway, very awkward. This um, He brings her to the apartment where his wife is, is gone, this 15-year-old girl who, whom he is um, to, thus far carrying on a, a rather chaste but aggressive courtship. Um, you know, just the idea, I mean, we really, this is the scene for me that we really see what kind of person Jake is. I mean, he's just a, a me first um, single, you know, he focuses on what he wants with single-minded intensity. Um, and it's just so shocking that he would do this, that he would, you know, bring, bring her to the, and not seem to be uh, very concerned about uh, appearances or anything. Uh, the, the whole business here about, um, see, I think a, a lesser screenwriter than the screenwriters on this movie would have had her, um, just go over to his lap and, and maybe be, um, uncomfortable or, or reluctant or embarrassed. Um, but the idea of her going to this open chair first, you know, she gets there in increments, you know, she, she goes to the chair and then we have, we see it in master shot and then she gets to his lap. You know, it's just, um, Very good. A lot of kitchens in Raging Bull. Now, on uh, the sight and sound, uh, just talking about the film's legacy, its stature, um, on the sight and sound the, uh, poll, uh, the poll that they do every 10 years of, uh, it used to be, uh, I think, just of critics, and now they, uh, or critics and like notable filmmakers, and now they have like a director's poll and a critic's poll, and Raging Bull always places near the top uh, it's one of those movies that is named um, uh, very, very often by the people who are polled. The poll is for, by the way, if you're not familiar with Sight and Sound, it's for the greatest uh, movies of all time. And um, greatness is, uh, I think with this last poll, the, the magazine just said, the editor of the magazine just said, greatness is whatever greatness means to you. Uh, it was a very interesting uh, list uh, this last time, uh, last uh, uh, summer, when it came out, but anyway, um, I think it came out in late summer. Um, on the director's poll, uh, *Raging Bull* is, does much better than on the critics' poll. Now, obviously, critics—that's that, I mean, a huge crucifix above the bed there, <laughs> above his marital bed, where he has now just brought this other woman or young girl, really. Now, notice they're on the bed, and she. She notices and gets up to to ponder or to look at this picture of Joey and Jake, Jake and his brother, uh, with their dukes up. You notice the crucifix dangling off that. Um, 
It's all very, very nicely done. I mean, I I like Kathy Moriarty in this movie because we have to we have to. Um, I think she does a good job of being enchanting. We we see why Jake and everyone else is so enchanted by her, but um, she doesn't um, play the princess, so to speak. She does, you know. She's a she's a she's a neighborhood gal, and uh, uh, that that sounds like a a euphemism. It's not. I just mean she's a down to earth, uh, you know, chick from the neighborhood. She she doesn't. Um, uh, Jake sees her as the the princess, but. Um, She she does a good job of and in a lot of these scenes with De Niro I think she you know the chemistry uh, comes from um, her being standoffish it's that that very cool kind of you know it's very cool anyway I I think the reason it's so it's one of those movies that's directed in stylish in a stylish way and in these really innovative ways as we see the first uh, Ray Robinson fight scene. Um, the actor they got to play Ray Robinson, boy, does he resemble Robinson in every way. Um, but, but I mean, take this scene when LaMotta, um, starts, um, beating Robinson, um, and, and the announcer's voices that you hear in the film are the real announcers that called, uh, the fight on radio or perhaps television, um, which I, I like that touch. Um, you see that flash pan and then we're back to, you know, the punching. I mean, just, just those little touches the way the camera uh, or the speed the the footage f- speeds up as ray hits the deck and, and lamada knocks him through the ring uh the way as you're seeing here lamada uh, uh de niro you see what kind of shape he was in de niro getting ready to continue the round circling circling walking he's pushed his glove together and it, it speeds up speeds up and now we're back to full speed these are really really um when scorsese shot the, especially the fight scenes i mean all of this stuff was uh uh, very, very carefully. I mean, almost every for, uh, every every shot is is choreographed, storyboarded. I mean, it was very, very, very um, carefully plotted how this would go, and uh, and what you would see on screen, and it's a marvel of um, direction, of movie direction, of of just. Um, having a plan uh, as a director and having it come off, having an actor and a, and a troupe of actors really who get what you're trying to do. Um, and because uh, Scorsese uh, sort of famously was not a, a fan of boxing or, or sports in general, I think he really was able to capture what was exciting about those fights um, without pondering or, or rather um, without... Um, You know, without without focusing too much on the sports, uh, you know, without being too much of a sports fan, uh, you know, uh, it's not about boxing. Uh, it's about uh, what it means to Jake, what these moments mean to Jake. Uh, this is a bedroom scene that I've seen directors pay homage to in different ways. Um, uh, just because the scene starts with Jake with his leg crossed, his legs crossed, his legs in the frame. And uh, all this shit happens in between. And then the scene ends with Moriarty on the bed, Jake in the bathroom. So they've switched places and you see her legs uh, dangling in that characteristic way, uh, that little girl sort of way. Uh, you see her um, 
her legs uh and that ends the scene with with that shot and uh, this scene is like its own little uh, its own little drama its own little story uh all in one all in one scene uh and I th- just like those kids jumping off the building into the pool i i've seen um i think spike lee pay homage to that in different ways and uh it's a really hot and heavy uh, little scene here. Uh, it's a very erotic, uh, erotic scene, and it's not, it's not shot in a way. I mean, the blocking and Kathy Moriarty is very, very good um, here at being a sort of j- just being sexy and wry, and um, but um, it's sort of shot in this almost sterile kind of way. Uh, uh, you know. Um, uh, I don't think we have music accompanying it, or, or if it is, it's not very um, noticeable. I mean, um, you know, Jake's sort of foreplay, and, and you know, it's just uh, the directive: take off your panties. You know, I mean, this is um, not sure what the use of the mirror and the you know, it's one of those mirror shots that I'm not sure what it what it gives us. Uh, it, it lets us see both their faces um, in a way. I think she's slightly out of focus in the mirror though now this is a little more um not as sterile the way this is shot but at it, what I, well, by sterile i just meant it's not um uh they're just static uh shots you hold on, uh, two shots you hold on one actor hold on the other and um that's so weird i like the gym smell you know <laughs> At any rate, um, yeah, I think that's why it does so well with the better on the director's sight and sound pole is is just because um, it is a it's a marvel of direction and the the innovations and and I mean let's face it there are just a lot of things that if you're a film director or an aspiring film director or I mean there are just a lot of choices that Scorsese makes and a lot of um, ways of shooting things like in the the fight scenes um, that are just they're just cool. They're just cool ideas. They're just, um, and a lot of editing things too that Thelma Schoonmaker did, uh, with, uh, Scorsese. It's very, very cool. <laughs> cool is the word for it. And, and, uh, it's the kind of movie that other directors wish they had made. That's why Apocalypse Now does as well, uh, with the, does better with the directors in the sight and sound pole. And Jake, the ice water down his shorts, you get this in the Rocky movies too. Um, it's this this whole idea of um, women make the knees weak. You can't have sex when you're training for a fight. Um, now, from what I understand, that the medical uh, medical science, uh, you have the Catholic iconography on the walls there. Um, from what I understand, there's not a whole lot to that. It's just, uh, it's probably a psychological thing with fighters, uh, more than a, you know, obviously sex does not literally make knee joints weak. There's the shot of her feet. Uh, so a little bookend there. This was the third fight. Now what in the film, what you're seeing the, the previous fight sequence with Jake and, um, 
and Ray, they fought six times. And what you see in the film, the first uh, fight we've seen with them was not their first fight. It was their second fight, I believe. It was the second fight um, uh, in which uh, was the only fight that Lamada won. Uh, and it was, uh, I think he considered it the high point of his life, really, uh, certainly his boxing career. Uh, now here you see the knockdown, uh, in the third fight, uh, when he fought Robinson. And, and by the way, uh, it's not like today where, you know, top fighters, top prize fighters, um, you know, um, Mayweather, you're lucky if you see Mayweather, well, when he, before he, um, retired, uh, you're, you're lucky if you see him fight once a year, um, they would fight uh, several weeks apart, uh, as little as three weeks apart sometimes. Uh, they would just fight more fights, fight more often. It's why Ray Robinson, at the toward the end of his career, had a record that was uh, hundreds of fights, you know, over 100 fights. And uh, Now, the, the um, wavy uh, sort of uh, smoke and the, the reason it looks so hot is because they shot this. You see it on the special features of the DVD. They explain uh, that they shot it. Scorsese had flames surrounding the ring, open flames, and, and he would shoot above them with them out of frame, and that would, um, that would create this effect, uh, this wavy, uh, hot-like effect. Uh, and Thelma Schoonmaker says on the special features that it looks like the pit of hell. It looks like you're descending into the pit of hell. And uh, that was part of an effort they made to make each fight uh, in, a, in subtle ways look like its own event so that the, the various fights and their outcomes um, didn't, didn't have the same look and didn't bleed together uh, or, or um, so that each has a distinctive. And, and you have this post-mortem for a few of the fights that we see that, um, that tells us sort of where we are. Um, so this loss, he would have, he would lose uh, all the fights except one, as I said, to Ray Robinson. Uh, he, the knockdown that he scores there against Robinson, Robinson obviously got up and continued to fight. Um, they would not, referees were not as quick to count out fighters and to stop, uh, to to have stoppages to stop the fight uh, because of cuts or because somebody's getting pummeled. They, they, they allowed fighters. Uh, if you watch some of Joe Lewis's old fights, uh, like the one against uh, Schmeling and uh, some of uh, um, Jersey Joe Walcott's fights, you know, uh, I mean, they would knock Dempsey would knock somebody down five times in a round and the guy would get up and he would just keep beating on him. They don't allow you to do that anymore. But uh, it added a, a whole other dimension of drama. You notice he didn't want to see Vicky after that, after that fight, uh, that loss to Ray. But but the knockdown he scores against Ray is huge because that he he views that as evidence that he's the better fighter. Um, probably in real life, the real Lamada too, because as he as he will tell Robinson, you never got me down, Ray. You never knocked me down. As far as montages go, uh, I always think of the Team America World Police, uh, the, the montage song they have. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that, Google that. Uh, it's, uh, it, it explains uh, how silly montages can be in movies. And uh, But as far as montages go, this is one of the great ones. Um, uh, just the fact that it's the only color footage and, and usually black and white footage is, is shows memories. And, and, you know, but here it's 
you know, an eight millimeter, they would have eight millimeter color film to shoot their whole movies. And um, they actually had Teamsters, I think they said uh, on the production notes, they had Teamsters shoot this so that it would have that amateur feel, the an amateur holding the camera. And they acted out all of these memories uh, from Jake's life. Uh, you notice they're by a pool here. They met by a pool. And, um, and then it cuts to these sort of... Um, it's intercut with this these fights where you see Jake racking up the victories in his career. There's our priest again, uh, this rooftop rooftop wedding. Uh, uh, looks like it's Joey's wedding there uh, to Lenore, uh, his wife. Kind of a Godfather 2 thing on that rooftop there, right? When uh, Vito is tracking... Uh, uh, the gangster that he's going to kill. He's, he, the parade is going on. He's tracking, uh, tracking him uh, from the rooftops, following him via rooftop. Uh, it's a creative, a very creative thing that they, uh, evidently Scorsese and his team uh, scratched the film uh, purposely when they put it on 35, you know, so it would have that grainy home movie look. Um they do cover a lot of time here. Uh, the film has to cover a, a good number of years, and um, they get a lot done here. All this is where the power of cinema, too. You know, this is all without words. You know, the, we have this uh, nice music. Uh, well, it's over now. Uh, we see Pelham Parkway now, uh, 1947 on screen, but um, it really is the power of film. You know. Uh, not a word spoken just just we just see that stuff going by and uh scorsese trusts the audience to get the point so now when we start this scene and this woman with a child in her arms is sitting next to joey um we know exactly who she is who those kids are and where they live and and the fact that we saw them he, he carried vicky over the threshold of their new house we saw that in the color footage so we know all this is and now another argument taking place in a kitchen um scorsese does this a lot a lot of filmmakers do it where you you have adults in an argument and you just put a kid in their lap and just creates this other <laughs> this tension um or this awkwardness uh this discord between the the child viewing something and and our our you know the child not realizing the significance of what's being said or what's going on. Um, they are speaking about the Janeiro fight. This is um, the scene where you have some, I mean, it's, it's appropriate given the, the characters and the uh, time period, but we have that unfortunate um, uh, 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 disrespect that the Joey character shows to his, to his wife uh, and Jake to his wife in, in this scene. Uh, uh, he kind of humiliates her. Um, it's it's a... Well, I shouldn't say that. It's a scene that the movie needs. Uh, we need different... Ex if only because... Um, and this is really, um, I think, key to the movie. We need different examples of Jake's paranoia and Jake's unreasonableness. Um, this whole thing with Janeiro is, is its mini movie, uh, another mini movie in this movie where, um, 
his wife makes this comment about Janeiro being good looking and it just sets Jake off in the same way the first wife set him off with the stake you know uh it, it, it's an innocent thing she didn't she she did not mean anything by it and it just it sets off his uh his insecurity uh bomb uh you know the 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 insecurity chip that he has running in his brain it just it just triggers it um now pesci a lot of these scenes that pesci has in the movie he doesn't get well i mean people like his performance in the movie but they come off as being De Niro's scene because De Niro is so dynamic in them. But the chemistry that Pesci has with De Niro and the the reactions that Pesci has to a lot of it, and, and like this where he's yelling at the wife here, I and mean, that's very real the way he's yelling at the. It feels realistic, is what I mean. And, and um, you know, Pesci makes these scenes work. You know, a lot of these scenes, um, the the did you fuck my wife scene is is really um something that they edited the different takes together to get it to feel a certain way in a sense. But the performance of Pesci is, um, you know, another actor here would, it's a whole different dynamic. Um, uh, in real life, the insecurity that LaMotta had about his wife straying or um, uh, cheating on him. Uh, remember, of course, when he first sees her, she's surrounded by these fellas and she kind of, uh, they say, uh, Joey says something to the effect that she, um, you know, she knows everybody, they know her. Um, uh, in real life, it's unclear whether um, she did or or she was a, a little bit of a, 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 maybe a, how do you say it? Uh, it's unclear what, what happened in real life or maybe his own paranoia drove her to uh, infidelity perhaps or something. Uh, uh, I don't know the score in real life, but uh, in the movie, the fact that that it isn't clear what to what extent she's um, cheating or intending to cheat or has never cheated, uh, you know, it, the movie makes sense if it's all in Jake's mind, and the movie makes sense if maybe um, maybe she does. Uh, uh, I, I like the ambiguity, is what I mean. And we even see the brother here, Joey, saying, you know, implying here that um, he's not taking his wife. Don't say anything to his wife. <laughs> you know, they're, they're both kind of a... Uh, uh, this is a time in history where you could just kind of put your wife in her place and, uh, you know... What was that movie with Kate Winslet and DiCaprio, uh, uh, Revolutionary Road, where it was... Um, you know, he's, he, the wife stays home and, and DiCaprio's just, you know, running around with a secretary or something. And, you know, she just has no, you know, and there's Copacabana on the screen now. So we're at the, we're at the Copa. Uh, another scene, you know, uh, that Scorsese will recreate again in Goodfellas, right? Uh, uh, sort of the same kind of idea. And it's important that he takes this bow in the Copa because we see that he's he's now a uh, a known very he's now a household name. Uh, you know the the top fighters at this time. Um, now there are so many sports that um, 
I, you know, but but the top fighters were household names. Just a hook he had. I love that comedian's joke. Uh, I think it's funny. I, uh, <laughs> just the joke itself is funny. I mean, uh, so the the way I read the movie, I, I want to talk about Schrader and the development of the screenplay um, a little more. Uh, get some water here. And Jake despises and is suspicious of Salvi, played by Frank Vincent. You see how he glares at him. Um, the real Lamada, um, from what I have read uh, uh, over the years, I've read a good deal about him. Um, uh, the man is still alive in his 90s, by the way. Um, The real Lamada was a little... I mean, he's portrayed in scenes like this in particular as um, decidedly antisocial, um, particularly toward these um, mob figures who, to whom he owed much. Uh, and um, it wasn't anything he could just do about... any something about. It was um, the way things worked uh, for his time and place. But the real Lamada evidently was a little bit more of a backslapper at this time in his life, a little bit more of a, I mean, this, these scenes uh, in the movie are crafted so that we understand. So we, we, we get the effect of, you know, he's suspicious of his wife. He's suspicious of them. He's, he's um, paranoid. Uh, but the real amount was a little bit more um, uh, friendly with them and uh, the mob figures and, and a little, as I say, a little bit more of a backslapper. Um, a good-natured man, um, uh, many people, uh, remembered him as being, uh, friendly and, um, you know, those nightclub scenes where he's performing in those rundown nightclubs as an older man, um, are crafted to make him look pathetic, but, uh, he was, um, jovial and, and, um, you know, he, he sort of fancied himself a song and dance man, but he, he couldn't sing or dance, um, but he he and he enjoyed people more than you get the sense of here uh, in these scenes. That's not good or bad. That's just uh, my my understanding. Now the um, the book uh, on which this is based was a book um, Lamada wrote about his life uh, with a couple of co-writers, I believe. One of them has a little um, bit bit uh, no lines, but a little part in the movie where he's standing by a bar, shakes. Joe Pesci's hand. Um, this is all very, very nicely staged. Uh, him going over one booth to the other, you know, this is it almost plays out in real time. Um, anyway, he wrote, he, he writes this book about his life, and it's, you know, this movie is one of the all-time examples of a fantastic movie. I don't love it unconditionally. I'll, I'll get to that point in the commentary, as I often do, where I lay out all of my problems uh, with the movie <laughs> and performances and shit like that. But um, I'll, j I mean, this is one of the all time examples, as I was going to say of a, a fantastic movie that is based on a subpar, uh, even a sort of idiotic book. Um, <laughs> uh, not a very well lettered book. And Lamada was not a, a you know, he he wasn't uh, Sir Galahad or, um, you know, uh, in the way he spoke, I mean, he was a, 
He's a Bronx guy. Um, like, kind of like The Godfather. I mean, The Godfather, if you read the book, I think Pauline Kael wrote something about it once where, you know, it's a trashy book. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of a, a pulpy uh, kind of, um, you know, I mean, what they what Coppola really did with it in, in, in adapting it was was turn it, give it an operatic uh, feeling that that um, it was much more of a trade paperbacky story. Uh, and, and I think you have some of that here where um, it, it was De Niro who was interested, who had read the book and was interested in it and brought the idea of doing the movie to Scorsese. Scorsese, um, for various reasons, didn't wasn't ecstatic about it and uh, it so happened that they, they got the project going uh uh, through various ways, and um, Mardik Martin is a, I believe, Iranian uh, uh, associate of Scorsese, a friend of his who had um, uh, had uh, to do uh, with, um, you know, helped Scorsese write uh, Mean Streets, and um, uh, is uh, has written some other movies and stuff, but not not a uh, he's not a first rate uh, screenwriter, and so. Uh, according to De Niro, uh, United Artists didn't want to shoot, uh, didn't want to make the movie that Mardik Martin had written that uh, was sort of the first draft that was adapted from. The screenplay credit uh, doesn't credit Scorsese's work and, and De Niro's work. They edited uh, uh, or they, they revised some things to the screenplay that is the movie we get on screen and the shooting script. Um, uh, the the credit is shared by Mardik Martin and and um, and Paul Schrader. But what happened was that um, because United Artists was uncomfortable with, uh, and I think this is according to De Niro, or or perhaps this has been, um, oh no, you know, um, a good source for uh, the production is um, an essay written by um, the critic Richard Schickel. Uh, he's a Time Magazine, one of the Time Magazine critics with Richard Corliss. Um, but Schickel wrote this um, essay in Vanity Fair, and I believe it's in its entirety available online. Um, if you just Google Schickel, or we'll, maybe we'll put a link uh, when we post this, but if you just Google Schickel and um, Richard Schickel and Braging Bull, it, I believe it pops right up. I think that's how I found it. And um, it's this long essay about the production of Raging Bull and how the movie was made. And, and so a lot of this uh, is um, uh, said in there. But um, they were uncomfortable with the Mardik Martin screenplay. And uh, so Paul Schrader, uh, the great Paul Schrader, who um, here's the Gennaro fight. Um, Jake taking out his frustrations on the pretty boy. Uh Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver and and um, uh, one of the uh, finest uh, living uh, screenwriters and uh, a very good director too, uh, uh, one of the finest screenwriters alive today, I think. Uh, Paul Paul Schrader was brought in to uh, not to punch up uh, Martin's script, but to to um, you know really uh, overhaul it, and uh, he did. He created uh, a lot of changes, including um, the fact that this movie, in a way, is about the two brothers. Um, that whole idea, I mean, um, there were other people uh, involved in Jake's life. You get more of that in earlier drafts, and then and then Schrader really did the two brothers thing. Um, uh, 
And I think I mentioned at the beginning, uh, there's the famous he ain't pretty no more uh, <laughs> line, uh, which people say all the time, and that I'm perhaps not even realizing which movie it comes from. Although that's common with these quotes, you know, people don't remember where they come from. This is my favorite little scene in the movie here, the steam room. But I'll just say, so Schrader was brought in. He had this, um, uh, I think I said before, this structure going back and forth in time. Uh, and they just, uh, the revisions that um, Scorsese sort of hold up uh, on an island, literally, with uh, De Niro, uh, because they didn't like uh, Schrader. And there was even an argument that De Niro and Schrader had about it and a falling out, uh, a temporary falling out. And um, because they didn't like uh, what Trader had done, uh, there was a masturbation scene that Trader had written. There was a couple other things they didn't like, and they wanted to change it. And Trader, you know, um, uh, didn't like that. I love that whole steam room thing. Uh, it just captures um, something that's not said explicitly, but it's shown to us in the movie, which I like. Is is Jake's life or career long struggle with weight, um, making weight as a fighter. Um, uh, always coming in overweight and trying to trying to lose pounds, um, asking for water, asking for just a little bit of relief. I think that's the writer there uh, of the Lamada book, uh, the journalist who wrote it with him, Pete something, I think. Uh, the guy shaking hands with Pesci. But yeah, asking for just a little bit of relief while he's trying to lose the weight and, and uh, his corner man there saying uh, with that little hand gesture, no water. Uh, uh, just a beautifully... Uh, realized uh, scene uh de niro once again you know in that little moment just dancing in the uh, bouncing in the steam room he really looks like a, a real fighter lamada famously said that he could have been a a world-class middleweight uh, uh but that's more um, lamada's own um self-aggrandizement maybe uh, or, or arrogance because he, he felt that way because he trained De Niro uh, in actuality I don't think you know at the time in the 1970s you know the top the top uh, I don't know what De Niro weighed at this time probably what LaMotta weighed uh, uh, but um, say say he weighed a, a buck 50 buck 60 uh, I don't think he's fighting the I don't think he'd have a prayer against the top uh, 165 pound fighters uh uh, in 1980 give me a break but uh it was a nice thing uh, uh to say anyway and he certainly um became a fighter to a large extent in this in this movie the major change that they made to schrader's draft uh that scorsese and de niro made uh i think was the structure that you know they now the movie just has this book ended thing with the nightclub and and is a, is much more the feeling of a straight chronology and um and, and they made all kinds of tweaks that most of which i think are good uh, if you read uh their screen i mean schrader's uh, and often it would be scorsese sort of shooting something different than the, the script in the opening scene um schrader has um this cross-cutting thing with the opening title sequence and uh, calls for that particular music, which I described in, uh, at the beginning. And um, uh, Scorsese obviously uses different music, and, and, and uh, it, it's all one sort of shot uh, in slow-mo with Michael Chapman running around in the background uh, doing those flashbulbs. Uh, um. So this fight that breaks out at the Copa between Salvi and Pesci... Uh, one of the great uh, brawl scenes in, in Scorsese's uh, filmography. And I, it, it seems to me that um, 
it's a little bit hard to believe that that he could slip away uh, as he will in a moment, jumping over the car. Uh, Pesci, I mean. Um, yeah, he sort of sucker punches him here, and so this is um, believable because um, uh, Pesci, or, or rather Joey, the real, as I said, was a, a fighter himself, and um, was not as perhaps diminutive as. Um, uh, the actor playing him here uh, it's horrifying you know the, doing the car here and um you know it's hard to believe that all these people would just be standing around but um you see how there's this scuffle 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 people pulling people off of other people and then he just jumps over the, the taxi and and slips away ah uh, now, uh, watch these shots. Debonair Social Club, he cuts in. So we're outside. It's raining. He comes in. We see the this on the wall. We see this pot boiling, teacup, and then the teacup handle, the card game, the me- and then you, zoom, you cut out to the people playing cards, and then you're in the scene. Um, Spike Lee uh, paid homage to that, I think, in Clockers. But the, the uh, or perhaps it, it was even do the right thing where it's the same sort of thing. You can tell he's just, it's a Paul Thomas Anderson thing where it's like he, he wants you to see that he's ripping off Scorsese. Um, kind of true what the mob boss tells them here. That's, that is the most important thing in life. Uh, no, no grudges or that's the most important thing with situations like this, right? Uh, I wish it never happened. You know, you can't hold a grudge. Um, so th- there's a good example of why I think the sight and sound director's poll has this movie popping up so high because, uh, in the script, it, I don't know, I don't know that, uh, I haven't looked at this, that part of the script, but, um, in a, in a while, uh, I don't remember, but, uh, I don't think it's written with all those cuts. It's certainly, I mean, that's, that's a directorial choice and an editing choice where, uh, what's really directorial choice? You have to choose. You have to shoot all of those little cut-ins, right? Um, the cut into the teacup, and then one of the teacup handle, um, or the coffee cup handle. So you know, we start outside this social. We go from one social club to another, right? Very different ones. We go from the Copacabana where that brawl's taking out to this, and at night to this much more. It's daytime here, but a much more serene social club, the Debonair Social Club, where these old mob men gather and play cards and drink coffee and have have their sit downs uh as uh, as they're having this sit down here um and you know maybe another director would give us the establishing shot of the debonair social club and then we would just cut into basically what we're looking at here um pesci and and the mob boss charlie uh, uh in in a in a conversation at a table and maybe you'd see the other men in the background uh, Scorsese transitions us from, uh, this is just how I think about it, uh, Scorsese transitions us from the one Copacabana where this uh, chaos took place, this violent chaos took place, uh, and, he, and he eases us into this very different location uh, where the aftermath and the fallout of that uh, event is going to take place. Uh, and, and the way he transitions us is, is by um, uh, the things that fascinate us about any location in real life the the accoutrement the um the uh, de- the details the things people touch the things they do um 
the texture of the walls, the uh, the way the I remember just from seeing it that the coffee cup and the saucer it has a stripe on it, uh, you know, and and it's the part the handle we we get that little cut in of the handle of the the part people touch the cards on the table, you know, he shoots the cards on the table and then cuts out to the men who are playing cards, you know, these things that people touch about the, these things about a location. Uh, about a place that are tactile, that the things we interact with, the things we remember, the, what it feels like to be in a certain place is, is uh, literally what it, often what it feels like to feel the things there, to touch the table, to see the pot boiling, to smell that. You can almost smell that coffee in there, uh, the way he eases us into that location. Um, all of that sort of heavy lifting, all of that work is being done uh, in a series of shots that are rather unassuming and um, static and, you know, almost not interesting. Um, but cut together like that, and then, and then um, you know, we go into that discussion, it's just very nicely, I don't know, I think that's what directors on the Sight and Sound poll are re- responding to. It's this, these very um, instructive directorial, directorial choices of how to affect the audience one way or another. Um, it's a very, very deliberate movie in, in a way that Scorsese in later years wouldn't be as deliberate in terms of uh, visually deliberate. Um, uh, sort of, um, I mean, in a movie, we're always being told, look at this, look at that. But um, like the sequence of shots uh, in the debonair social club that transition us, the ones I described, you know, uh, and the ones you just saw. Um, that's very much, um, look at this, look at that, look at, you know, when we're in the ring with Jake, um, the fact that, that, uh, you know, boxing movies often were shot differently and Scorsese brings us in the ring, you know, the fact that we are over Jake's shoulder, the fact that we are, uh, you know, almost have the referee's point of view at times, um, you know, very much controlling exactly what you want the audience to see, uh, uh, in a way that um, sometimes movies don't do. And sometimes Scorsese's movies later on wouldn't do that as much. Uh, be much more free-flowing, um, uh, where you are taking in a, a whole room at once. Um, now this guy, um, who's playing the... Um, perhaps the athletic commission uh, official or the boxing official who was um, conducting the weigh-in between Billy Fox and LaMotta. Uh, uh, he has one of those faces, those Norman Rockwell faces, or, you know, like those actors, maybe it's the hair, those actors you'd see in old film noir movies that um, they just, they literally don't make them like that. Uh, they literally, you don't see people who look like that anymore. It's not just the costuming, it's his face. Uh, he, like that referee standing over there. I mean, he just looks like a referee from the 50s. You don't, I don't see very many men who, who have that face anymore. <laughs> oh, it's uh, the undefeated Billy Fox. Now, the Scorsese does a very good job of um, making sure the audience get the point uh, by showing and not telling. You know, it's another, another director, directorial thing that... Um, I love this little bit of business of the the mob boss. He wants to change his seat. He wants to sit over here, not over there. You know, it's just, 
so this was a, a real uh, thing that happened. Well, everything is real in the sense of um, certain events. It's just the way they're depicted that sometimes, you know, that's where you get the dramatic license in this movie. But um, a lot of the dialogue and stuff. Um, but this was a, a fight that um, uh, LaMotta threw um, uh, in exchange for the outfit's help in, in getting uh, the title shot that he wanted. Um, uh, this is, uh, it was a gambling thing that uh, people stood to make. Uh, well, it was as you heard the boxing official uh, explain to Jake and his brother, you know, uh, the odds are down and, and uh, the fix is in. People, the word is out that the fix is in somehow. And and um, what LaMotta is, is doing is he's um, almost as, uh, it's not clear to me what his state of mind is. It's maybe uh, a slight flaw in the film. Uh, those flashbulbs coming into the shot, uh, you know, is a whole thing that uh, PTA copies and a lot of directors copy. It's not a, I don't know if it's a flaw in the film, but, but we never get his state of mind of why he throws the fight in such a way that it's clear to the audience and it's clear to everyone watching that he threw the fight. It's sort of confusing because in a, in a scene coming up, this is a very um, moving scene too, um, where he's crying. It's the one time you see Jake um, uh, sort of uh, well, it's one of the few times you see Jake, uh, the other is in the jail cell where he's really overcome by, um, uh, bad choices that he made. He's crying. And I like how, uh, his corner man is sort of yelling at him. He's saying what I, what I do, what I do. Um, now that's, it's very interesting that he's up, he throws the fight in such a way where it's obvious that he's throwing the fight. He doesn't try to mask it. Um, it, it later on in the kitchen with his brother, he'll say that, uh, now he knew he was going to throw the fight. He'd already made that decision. That's why that you have that moment where the boxing officials talking to them and, and, um, they, they deny it to him that the fix is in, but, um, you know, he's upset with himself here because he, he, he didn't want it. He could have beat Billy Fox uh, because, as we hear, Billy Fox wasn't uh, in Jake's league as a fighter. And um, and so he's all upset here um, because his he's, uh, boxing license has been suspended and um, he was supposed to go down. But he didn't, as Pesci demonstrates here by, uh, <laughs> very funny, that's all he had to do. Um, uh Billy Fox was a, apparently a tomato can, uh, you know, a very, a, a fighter that wasn't very good. And, and, um, he was supposed to be knocked down. Uh, that was the plan and he didn't. And, but he, he allowed himself to be pummeled and lose that way. It, it's all, it's not very well explained in the movie. Now that's a funny moment there. The mama Luke, uh, but it, you know, Pesci reacts, uh, Joey reacts as if he doesn't know what a Mama Luke, he's never, well, perhaps it's a, I don't know, when did Italians, Italian Americans started using Mama Luke? Uh, it, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a rather, um, it's an epithet. It's a, it's a, it's a curse word, very, very graphic curse word. And, um, it just, it, I feel like his brother would have known that word. It, it doesn't seem to me that Jake would be using a curse word that he invented or that 
his brother hadn't heard him use many times, but, but it is a funny little moment. Here's another example of something going on in the scene, almost as the centerpiece of what's going on, but it's not what's going on. So you have his, um, his cut man and his, his uh, corner man uh, rehearsing uh, uh, cut st- a cut stitching that they would do between rounds. Um, back at this time, you were allowed to, you know, as long as you could keep your fighter alive almost, they would allow him to fight. And so in the Rocky movie, you see uh, Mickey uh, break Stallone's, uh, or rather Rocky Balboa's nose, uh, setting it back into place because it had been broken in the previous round. And so they, they snap it back into place and they send him back out there. Uh, um, that much blood, forget a broken nose, that much blood in a fight uh, today uh, would, would cause a referee to stop it. And rightly so, what we know from the neuroscience and head, head injuries and, and um, even without the science, you just see fighter, uh, fighters late, later in their life. Um, uh, Thomas Hearns, uh, uh, the great fighter from the 1980s, uh, Later in his life, uh, if you've seen him interviewed, he's he's just one example of a fighter who was um, at times incoherent and and slurring, and um, so it's good that they don't uh, allow you to literally give a fighter stitches in the corner <laughs> before the next round. And the gloves were a little more. Uh, I don't know if they were. Um, weighed fewer ounces than they do today. Here I am talking about boxing again. I don't know if they necessarily were weighed less, but the texture was different and they were a little more, you know, they're, they're not as soft maybe as some of these Grant gloves or um, Everlast gloves that you might see uh, Manny Pacquiao or, or a great professional fighter using today. It's only a matter of time today where um, until uh, professional prize fighting institutes some kind of uh, uh, or makes it, uh, forces fighters to use some kind of headgear or uh, uh, head protection or, or, or softer gloves or some way of, of mitigating uh, blows to the head um, because I think they're really going that direction in, in football um, where you see also a lot of blows to the head and the effects of which, uh, the effects of that over time, uh, none of which has anything to do with uh, Raging Bull. <laughs> Again, Jake's point of view here. Sorry about that. Uh, it is fascinating, though, <clears throat> how uh, how um, the public uh, perceives that. You know, uh, I don't think pro boxing would be any less exciting if um, measures were taken to uh, protect the health of uh, uh, you know the people engaged in that sport. You know, it's only professionals that uh, don't wear headgear. By the way, amateurs and Olympic fighters, where it's only professional prize fighters that don't don't wear headgear. And, you know, street ball brawlers in the back alley, I suppose. So here again, um, Jake's paranoia, the paradigm, and, and the brother, Joey, looking on, as we are, you know, uh, Looking on in this hallway, uh, Jake wakes, waits for them to leave, and then we have this smack, and Joey moves a little closer, but still doesn't interfere. It's unclear to me in this scene, too, 
what the motivation or what the emotional state of uh, Joey is. Um, you know, we hear at the beginning uh, in that conversation uh, when at the pool that um, he took Vicky out a couple times but didn't have sex with her because Jake asks specifically, did you bang her? Uh, you know, asks in his own way. <laughs> that would be his own way of asking that question. There's the famous Steadicam uh, sequence. Um, but um, it's unclear what um, Joey's motivation is there, and I don't know if I... That's an ambiguity. I don't know if I like that so much as some of the other ambiguities. Um, uh, is he concerned for Vicky? Is he concerned? I mean, it would be conceivable that he's concerned that, you know, Jake is just being unduly distracted and angered at a time where he should be getting ready for a fight. You know, you, you know, at this time, especially fighters were very, uh, Rocky Marciano, uh, uh, the, another great Italian American fighter would, would lock himself away and, and not see anybody for, for uh, a long time before he had to fight someone. He would just, he wouldn't even say the name of his opponent, uh, until it was time to fight that opponent. I mean, they would do crazy things like this and so maybe he is he concerned that jake's getting distracted is he concerned for vicky is he is he really uh uh sort of in love with vicky to you know um it seemed pretty innocent he's just asking her if she wants something to eat but so thelma schoonmaker uh the editor uh scorsese's longtime editor points out that when she saw this footage they they the, oh she she mentions too um that they couldn't use the preferred take, that there was a take that they really liked, uh, that Scorsese really liked, and that was damaged, and so they had to use this take. But it's a pretty good take, I guess. I mean, it looks wonderful. And it's, it's um, you know, what do you say about the most one of the most beautiful Steadicam maneuvers ever? If, if you don't know what, what, you're, what you're looking at here, uh, and now the sequence is over as we cut to the ring announcer, and, and you heard, or you may have... Uh, heard there in the dialogue uh, or seen the subtitles that the I love what he does there with the gloves and the uh, Marcel Sar Sardan was no uh, Billy Fox though he was a good good champion um, well I love that we're underneath them with the cameras underneath them as they punch there too well just if you don't know what that what you just saw with that steady cam shot um it it a steady cam is a apparatus that allows a camera operator to walk around, run around, even jump around, uh, and it's sort of it counteracts the jostling of the camera by stabilizing the camera to the op camera operator's body, and uh, through a set of uh, I think springs, it's and, and it it just keeps the image very very steady even though you're moving, so you can get sh tracking shots like that without you know, feeling the bumps of every step, and uh, his corner uh, did stop the fight, but I, I, I thought I read somewhere that this is actually wrong, that, that, that the referee stopped the fight, but uh, I've never seen uh, the footage of this fight. Uh, you know, there are so many old fights on YouTube now. Um, now, this in the movie is sort of portrayed as Jake uh, getting the title, Jake finally triumph triumphing, uh, but um, as I said, I think his his defeating of um, when it when his career was over, I think he looked back at beating uh, beating Ray as his big his big victory. But yeah, the steady the steady cam shot. Um, what happens is the steady cam operator was walking with the characters as they left the dressing room, went out through the corridor into the crowd through the crowd. This is meant to be Joe Lewis 
on the left, uh, the great champion, uh, Joe Lewis, who uh, would have had a mustache at this time. Uh, actor doesn't really look like Joe Lewis very much, uh, <clears throat> but uh, he would have been a little older in 1950. And, uh, and uh, 1950, I think, was the year that Rocky Marciano um, ended the career of Joe Lewis uh, by, by uh, pulverizing him. Um, but what the Steadicam operator did is uh, follow the characters at, at points in the corridor and through the crowd. Uh, he's he's behind the fighter and and uh, the uh, you know behind in front of them, behind in front of them. Uh, and then when they get near the ring, he actually steps onto a, a crane, and the crane lifts him, the Steadicam operator, up in the air, and oh, and so you get that overhead shot. Uh, of the crowd surrounding the ring, all those extras, and then Jake uh, or De Niro in the ring. Um, and it's a shot that uh, people just love. And, and uh, it's, easy, it's, easy, it's easy to see why. It's such a simple thing to do. Just step right on a crane and we'll lift you up. But um, it's, an, it's an ingenious use of it, I think. Ingenious use of... Um, what is today pretty rudimentary uh, uh, te- uh, filmmaking technologies, um, uh, standard stuff. You you and and a good crane operator helps there too. I think so. This whole uh, scene here is is the scene that um, was not contained in the script until De Niro and um, and uh, and Joe Pesci or <laughs> De Niro and um, uh, Martin Scorsese wrote it. Uh, this is the scene where, uh, as uh, he's doing now, Lamada is interrogating his brother about what happened between he and Salvi at the Copa, and um, the brother is uh, denying it at first, or really denying it all the way through. And um, again, you have uh, something else going on in the scene, this this uh, this television not coming in clearly. Um, it's not hard to get the... Um, uh, once again, not hard to get the uh, what you might call the uh, visual symbolism here. Jake is myopic. Jake can't see things clearly. Uh, he uh, he just can't get a clear picture of what the truth is about his life. And you know, maybe his wife is faithful. Maybe his brother uh, really is looking out for him and not trying to uh, literally fuck his wife. Uh, and Jake is so nuts and so. Um, out of control emotionally that he he can't realize that the famous De Niro I heard things I heard things it's funny when stuff becomes part of the the pop culture zeitgeist like that oh, I hate that fucking word zeitgeist I'm sorry um but when stuff becomes part of the culture like that, I heard things, you know, you have people be doing De Niro impressions on Saturday Night Live. I heard things, I heard things. It, it's like the uh, you talking to me thing. I went to a screening of Taxi Driver and you see De Niro doing that, you know, that you talking to me. And everybody kind of giggles because it's a thing now. It's like a thing that's been lampooned and, and, um, and people say it without even knowing where it comes from, like I said before. And it's kind of like... It loses the power that it had. I mean, you it really loses... I mean, in that, are you talking to me? That's the best scene in Taxi Driver for my money. I mean, that is... The, and now nobody can watch it without irony because 
we've abused our privilege of uh, quoting lines so much that it's it's become a it's become funny to this audience. But I was uh, I had to cover my ears so I wouldn't hear the giggles because it's compelling what he I mean that performance is like the performance right here you know uh, and this is where he says right there that he's going to kill somebody which is scary very scary um, but yeah it's like. Uh, uh, I heard things, I heard, you know, when he's doing that, I mean, that's a, this is really good, uh, uh, you know, really good performance, you know, and, uh, and Pesci sells it, you know, Pesci's reaction as his brother sells it, um, uh, once again. But yeah, I wish we could not do that to some of the great scenes and great lines, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll give you an offer you can't refuse, Brando and The Godfather, you know, it's like, can't really enjoy just what a cool line that was anymore because of what we've done to it in, in the annals of pop culture, you might say. Now, this what Jake does here is, I think, the the critical where his paranoia and idiotic interpretation of reality hits hits its fever pitch. Right? Um, uh, he says. Uh, you included yourself. You said kill them. You included yourself with Salvi and all these other people. I hate. Why would you do that? And so this is the the height of his craziness. He accuses his brother of of having sex with his wife. <laughs> that little moment there where he says, "Just tell me," as if you know it'll be okay. He does the right thing. Uh, I think the Joey character uh, for all his. Uh, you know, he is his brother's brother for all his uh, kind of uh, goofiness. He says uh, what you should say, you know, if your brother, you know, I, I'm not going to answer that. I'm your brother. I'm not going to answer it. And it's stupid. And uh, how could you ask me that? How could you even go there? It's a funny bit of dialogue. If Lenore calls, tell her I went home. Sort of suggesting that his wife's always calling, uh, where the fuck is he? You can see, I like how the dialogue allows us enough to, to see these little things that Jake is, is focusing in on and, and interpreting as confirmation. It, you know, it's, it's, it's what's called confirmation bias, right? I mean, he, he, it's like when he says, you know, you should be, if you're doing a little less eating and a little more in the bedroom upstairs, you, your wife won't be, uh, you won't be having these problems with your marriage, his brother says. And you can see De Niro's face, uh, Jake kind of interpreting that like, uh, you know, why would, why would he be saying that? You know, <laughs> it's, uh, I like what this movie does to, um, the Jake character as in, in, in those kinds of moments. Uh, we have the big falling out coming up with his brother and the, the violence. And, but I like what, I like that this character, one of the great characters in cinema, of course, is, is, um, a, basically a conspiracy theorist about his own life and the people who love him, uh, who care about him, you know, his brother trying to look out for him, trying to, uh, manage his career, trying to see if his wife wants a hamburger, you know, and, and he's, a, he's become a conspiracy theorist. He's so been driven crazy by paranoia about his wife and what she's up to and whether she'll stray. And, uh, 
in the movie she went to see as Father of the Bride, right? With Spencer Tracy, of course, not not Steve Martin. This would be in the 50s, not... Uh, oh, when did they make that remake? What was it, the 90s, early 90s? In 1990, Diane Keaton, uh, uh, Steve Martin. I liked the remake. I like, I like Steve Martin as... Uh, you know, when he played the, the cheaper by the dozen movies, you know, I, I, I like those movies. <laughs> I, I think they're watchable. I th- I like Steve Martin as kind of, a uh, a loving father. And, and, uh, I always liked Bonnie Hunt too. Now what she's saying here, um, uh, yeah, I sucked his cock. I sucked your brother's cock. I sucked everybody's cock on the block. You know, that whole, um. I hope someone doesn't, <laughs> doesn't, uh, as they listen to this, fast forward, uh, for some reason, jump around through the MP3 and fast forward, rewind, and then they hit that one spot where I say, I sucked his cock. I sucked everybody's cock on the block. Maybe we could just create an audio drop of me repeating that over and over. You see him yelling at his kid there about um, something the kid's doing at the table, uh, sort of a ver- sort of a version of his brother. You know, this is this is the most brutal beating in the movie because it is two brothers. Um, there was an audible gasp in the theater when I went to a revival screening, which I often do go to. I love revival screen. I went to a screening of Raging Bull, and when he hits Kathy Moriarty, when he sort of socks her just a straight right hand you know there it is and she collapses um you know we can believe that his brother were he and his brother are, are you know there's violence uh there but when he hits her that way you know it's different from the open hand slaps that he was giving her which unfortunately would have been the norm uh for some marriages um, at this time, and you know, perhaps today, I, I don't think domestic violence has ever taken a break at any time in history. We just have a little bit more of a, you know, more people are uh, not for it these days. But it still, still goes. Still, there's still people running around who think it's okay to hit people. This is like, in a way, Kathy Moriarty's best scene, isn't it? <laughs> Just the wordless. Uh, she's, you know, there's a there's something telling about the fact that she's not in a frenzy to get her things and get out of here. She's not, she's not trying, or she doesn't come back later when she thinks he might not be home, or she doesn't have someone else go get her things. Um, she's just kind of doing it in slow motion. And that's what suggests to us that she's not going to run out on him or walk out on him just yet. Um, that she perhaps loves him, that she, well, of course, anytime there's kids, you have you have that component. Uh, I'm just trying to explain what, what the character might be feeling here. And, um, and I think it's, it's revealed in the way that she's, doesn't seem to be well of course she's in a daze and she's kind of in shock and she's kind of lethargic because of what just happened but 
you know, just that slow way she walks. Around. And then you get this hug where it's, we, the audience doesn't know how to feel about, that. <laughs> you know, she should leave. She should go. Um, So this is another French fighter, Dautil. Um Oh, that's not the way to pronounce it, I'm sure. But Now, I remember after I'd seen the movie, you know, I'd, I'd gotten the new DVD, I think, and watched the movie, and then I uh, had some free time afterward, and <clears throat> I went on YouTube and or um and looked up some of the fights and watched the actual fights and this this bounce that Dautil does on the ropes I think is is taken from what really happened in this fight and and the uh the rope dope thing that uh uh I think the announcer there calls it playing possum but the um it was something I remember that uh, watching the footage that, uh, and it's always grainy. You can't really see what's going on in these old fight footages, but um, or footage of old fights that you get. But um, I think that's how it really. I think they really captured what what went on to my memory. I mean, um, uh, he was he basically let Dautil punch himself out, and and um, and then I think just cracked him in the body or hit him, hit him in the body and that hurt Dautil. And then, uh, I think he just walked, Dautil just walked into a right hand in the next round, the beginning of the next round. It does, it's, uh, something like that. But, um, I remember after I did that, after I looked up the fights, um, that are depicted in the movie, uh, after watching the movie, uh, several years ago, I, I remember that, uh, having a new appreciation for the, you know, cause as I said before, um, Scorsese wasn't a fight fan and wasn't really interested in boxing, but the fidelity that they had to, um, to recreating some of those, um, sequences and, and making the fight seem the way it seemed in, uh, to people watching on TV in real life. I mean, that, uh, they really, uh, seem to have, um, done that successfully, um, uh, when I looked, uh, I looked at the Robinson fights, which I had seen bef- before, but, um, in the Ray Robinson fights, they, they really do that too. Um, it helps that the actor who plays Ray Robinson looks precisely like him, uh, not even in the face, uh, but, uh, uh, they got the hair right and they sort of got that, that body, uh, the body that that actor has. Now I still say this to, um, you know, when I'm, when I, uh, whenever I need to use especially salty language to, um, or when I'm trying to express anger or something, I still say your mother sucks elephant dicks, um, the way Pesci says, that, you know, the, uh, story goes that, um, LaMotta, when they were in production, the real Jake LaMotta, uh, took them to the fights, uh, to see the fights at Madison Square Garden, took Scorsese and I think De Niro and, and of the images that, um, stayed with Scorsese was the one you just saw there, the blood, there's the hand gestures of the cut man, um, the, um, 
the blood in the sponge and then the sponge, the blood coming down the body of the fighter, that the way that's photographed in slow motion is, um, you know, it's hard to light stuff uh, like this that you're seeing here, too. Michael Chapman uh, really, uh, it seems like a, a lot of bright light like you would have in real life above the ring, but um, uh, he creates some real deep shadows. Uh, in the fight sequences, you know, where there's a lot of movement and, and you know, um, we have that that punch coming up uh, uh, where Robinson uh, throws the haymaker when Jake's against the ropes. And and you see Jake's point of view again. And uh, Jake um, uh, takes the, you know, Robinson becomes this silhouette and, and he looks like death itself. Gee whiz. I mean, that, I mean, that's probably what it felt like to um, to uh, fight. Ray Robinson, uh, but this is what Lamada would would do. It wasn't as exaggerated um, uh, as the it has to be in in this movie. But um, uh, this sort of thing that like Ray Robinson would not have just stood there waiting. Um, he he. Uh, uh, but here comes here comes the shot, and uh, it's almost uh, oh boy, look at that! I mean, that's that's lit incredibly well. Uh, so th I think this is not sped up or slowed down. That was in real time. Now this shot of, um, uh, you can tell by the smoke primarily behind him, th that shot of De Niro is sort of slowed down and um, very stylized stuff. Uh, you know, uh, it's almost comic book-like, like Sin City, right? Uh, if you see movies like that, uh, that, that try to recreate the, the textures of comic book images, um, uh, Watchmen does it, uh, too, uh, Zack Snyder's Watchmen, uh, uh, recreating that, I mean, you really get that here in the, in the black and white, it's almost a, a Dick Tracy look, and obviously the blood spurting out is, is not, uh, is stylized, and, um, here it comes, here's that shot, genuinely kind of horrific, um, Jake's point of view, that hand, that, that gloved hand, <laughs> that it becomes a horror movie in this scene, right? Um, where that blood splash, it's almost like an alien where, um, uh, the alien pops out of, uh, pops out of, uh, uh, Hurt, uh, John Hurt and, uh, splashes all over, uh, Oh, uh, what's that actress? Veronica Cartwright uh, splashes all over. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, here's You Never Got Me Down, Ray. Now, in actuality, their relationship was... Uh, they they were not... They, they, they didn't dislike each other as much as this might suggest. You know, this sort of braggart thing that Jake's... You Never Got Me Down, Ray. Um, it was true. Um... I like you know that goes with the Catholic iconography of Scorsese too in this movie. Um, um, just you know, maybe I've been, maybe I'm too influenced by the Da Vinci Code or something. But uh, the idea of self-flagellation is part of Catholic history, and and the idea of purification through pain and um, uh, suffering. Uh, this is another image Scorsese got from going to see real fights at Madison Square Garden. This blood on the ropes just dripping there. Um, Very nicely, uh, you know, it, just that little image tells, you know, tells so much about Jake. So we've skipped ahead to 56 here. 
that was um I don't know. I haven't seen the fights in a long time. I don't know if that's really a, a if that fight with Robinson was the worst beating Jake took from Robinson, but um in a way it doesn't do Lamada justice as a fighter this movie because he's portrayed as as um sort of a you know, someone who if he couldn't take punches as well um you know, if he didn't have such a head of rock that he would have lost uh, a much, you know, he would have gotten knocked down by Ray. But he was he was a world-class fighter. He wasn't just this mindless brawler. And uh, if you watch his fights, I mean, he could box and he had a, he had a wonderful um, uh, way of sort of um, uh, cornering another fighter, so to speak, of uh, of kind of uh, uh, just just walking him down and and uh, and um, and knowing uh, kind of uh, now I'm just I'm just geeking out on boxing, but knowing kind of uh, what punch to throw uh, 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 for the guy he was fighting, you know uh, uh, that that time he if you watch the fight where he defeats Ray. Robinson uh it's a perfect example of what I'm trying to describe is this way of just uh he he won on he won the decision but it's it's this way of just um uh uh adjusting the way he fought according to who he was fighting uh who the opponent was and and you don't you know the movie doesn't uh, you don't get that impression you get that he was just somebody with a, a head of rock who who could throw hard punches but um you know you got to be in, you got to be it's a certain kind of intelligence to be a good fighter a good prize fighter you know um the best ones are much more smart than the world might presume or give them credit for and i think uh the Jake Lamotta character in the movie is um in a way, intelligent. I mean, he's terrifically manipulative, which takes intelligence of a kind. Now, these are the scenes that are particularly sad because uh, I think the saddest for me is uh, coming up. And, and, and of course, the, the, the gag here in the movie that... Um, doesn't register as very funny because uh, uh, of how tragic it is. But the gag here is that that old comedian in the Copa, no hand, just the hook he had. Remember that punchline earlier in the movie? That 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 wash that, that kind of hacky comedian. Uh, uh, Jake has become a version of that man, uh, but not playing the Copa, playing this room in Miami and telling. Telling these jokes. Evidently, these were these were jokes that Lamada would tell in his nightclub nightclub routine. The phenomenon of washed up singers, or, or uh, rather, washed up uh, people in the public eye, becoming uh, sort of lounge acts, uh, Vegas style lounge singers. Uh, the, the era of the lounge singer. The Lounge Act, sort of, maybe it was Swingers in the mid-90s, you know, that movie Swinger. It started to come back then a little bit when people got into zoot suits again and swing music. This idea of a lounge band. Um, but really, it, it's sort of gone away. Uh, except in Vegas, you still see it. But um, a lot of those acts in Vegas are sort of all about spectacle now, uh, rather than just a, a performer. Um, 
see the movie uh johnny depp movie uh fear and loathing in las vegas um uh hunter thompson and and uh and his partner in crime uh, uh gonzo uh are at one point in the movie uh, eager to see uh debbie reynolds uh, uh, perform a lounge act uh of course at the time in the 70s debbie reynolds would have been uh, Pastor Prime, uh, you know, singing in the rain was 25 years prior. And, you know. <laughs> now that, 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 uh, it's a good thing Sugar Ray wasn't here tonight is that, that's pretty, that's pretty funny. Actually, it's a pretty funny thing to say. Uh, and you see Jake's animosity toward um, mafia uh, shakedowns, with where he gives him that shakedown line. Um, now, this Lamada here, this um, sort of joking around, uh, you know, he's become a jolly fat man, kind of, is the idea, I think. But... Um, this is what I was talking about before. This is closer to um, Lamada when he was in his fighting career and when he was younger. I mean, this is evidently he was always kind of um, a joker like this. It was just um, in the movie they had to play up that he really had a problem with Salvi and these people who, whom he viewed as a threat to, um, to the sanctity of his relationship with Vicky. So we see here that um, this will come back. Uh, he, the way he verifies this woman's age as over twenty-one is he gives her a uh, a non-PG thirteen kiss. Um, so he still has his. Um, it's amazing that the real Lamada would um, be so honest you know you have to give the man credit for being candid and being okay with this he was okay with this movie uh now apparently they're shooting a sequel <laughs> with his with his blessing but um anyway uh i mean it's just unflattering what they're, de- they're depicting there his uh appreciation for um younger women uh who are in fact uh probably under age um uh, but of course that'll come back in a in a scene coming up where uh, we find out that that woman was, uh, in fact, not 21. And uh, it catalyzes his trouble with the law. I don't think I, I finished the thought about um, the saddest scene in all this uh, is, you know, taking the diamonds off the championship belt. Uh, and then he finds out that if he would have left him on, he could have got more money. And that's the only reason he's chagrined. Like in the moment, he doesn't, uh, you know, it's also a payoff of that little shakedown joke he has because he explains to Vicky that if he can spread $10,000 around um, basically paying off officials that he can make his, the criminal charges against him might, uh, might not stick. So the nightclub in in the name of of a a retired boxer is uh 
uh, I don't know if people, um, how people, well, I guess it's where you live in the country, you might not be familiar, but um, this is a long-standing thing. Uh, the the biggest one is, uh, well, you see it in Godfather. You see it in Godfather um, uh, when Duval, Duval is waiting for... Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, it doesn't matter. Virgil Salazzo when he's waiting for Salazzo to, or or when Salazzo picks, uh, or, or is that it, or is it when Michael is outside uh, in, around Christmas time? But um, the point is, there's a you see the exterior of Jack Dempsey's restaurant, uh, Dempsey's restaurant in New York. Uh, uh, the idea of a club or a bar or a restaurant in the name of the uh, 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 of the retired fighter. Um, you had Dempsey's there. I think you... Um... Oh, there's a bunch. There's a bunch. They're not all as famous as Dempsey's, but the, the Lamadas there was, is the same idea that Jake was cashing in on whatever his name could get him and whatever goodwill could get him. You really see the weight here. Oh, gosh, do you ever put on by De Niro. If you're not aware, uh, they halted production. Uh, they shot They shot most of the film. They shot the boxing. They shot the New York scenes. There's that wonderful little cut-in shot. And then Scorsese. <laughs> I love that. Scorsese cuts to the picture of her. It's, it's a wonderful break from reality you know that maybe that was the picture you know he he cuts from there to the picture of her that appears to have been taken that night at the nightclub <laughs> at Amada's nightclub you know uh wearing the same thing she was wearing and we can compare the two and so we know exactly what how ridiculous Jake's you know responses to these sort of good old boy looking uh police detectives here uh you telling me that girl looks 14 you know well, here it comes. Here comes the line. Are you telling me? And she's a year younger than, uh, of course, the woman to whom he's... Uh, the, the woman he, he married, uh, Vicky. Vicky was 15 when they met. This girl is 14. Uh, from whom he is estranged, uh, the wife. And then that's what you're getting here. He's returning to um, uh, get that uh, belt and... Very sad scene coming up here. The way they age Kathy Moriarty is uh, probably not as successful as the transformation that De Niro, <laughs> the transformation that De Niro in, uh, engaged in, huh? Uh, I mean, he really looks twenty years older. Uh, he really looks like a different person here. Uh, of course, they put that tight shirt on him. And, um, you know. He, he he's lucky that he's one of these people that gains weight in his face. You know, um, you really see his face fleshed. Oh, the way he looks today is an older man. His face is fleshed out. Um, you see the way Kathy Moriarty looks. Um, this is supposed to be a number of years later. He yells at her for the dishes uh, being on being on a dish shelf or whatever that is. Um, that that hairdo she had. Well, first of all, I don't believe that her hair would look like that in the morning. Uh, when her kids are asleep and she's still in her bathrobe. But I feel like they could have done something there to age her a little bit or, um, I don't know, maybe give her hair a bob. Like, uh, this is almost the sixties at this point. You started to see those kind of bob, uh, or curvy haircuts that women had, uh, 
Now, this is almost uh, comic, the belly hanging out of the shirt. <laughs> now, Sh Schrader's um, treatment um, that was revised by, by Scorsese and... Uh, here we go, very famous uh, scene. But anyway, uh, Schrader's um, treatment uh, screenplay that was revised by Scorsese and De Niro uh, had much more of the mafia. You get a little bit of it here in these Miami sequences, but much more of the mafia component of Jake's life and, and the way in which he interacted with these gangster figures, the way in which fights were fixed. It's much more of a mafia movie. And uh, that's what you had in a lot of the cuts back and forth. Here again, uh, we note we note that these um, police guys are sort of good old boy types with the cowboy hats and that sort of thing. Now, kudos to Michael Chapman here. For not lighting him, you know, I don't know what those shafts of light, I don't know where they're supposed to be coming from. They appear to be natural light, um, uh, or, or they seem like they're intended as, um, you know, skylights and maybe the cell. But um, kudos for not lighting this in a way where, you know, I think the tendency would have been to just make just illuminate the bench in some way, the whole bench. And instead we get these shafts of light and we don't fully see. People ask, evidently the rubber, there was rub, rubberized uh, something or other on these walls. So no, it's not De Niro literally punching a, a stone or uh, a concrete wall. Um, uh, but it's plenty hard. And he's going, you know, the the ones that uh, make me squirm are, are the um, the head blows that he's doing here, um, ramming his head into it. That's particularly uh, evidently. Uh, uh, oh, I I remember reading this in the book, uh, uh, the actual book on which this movie's based. Uh, 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 Lamada, this this is what happened. Uh, Lamada broke his his hands or his knuckles. Uh, Oh, bre breaking your knuckles sounds painful. Uh, I, I I don't know the extent of the injuries, but he broke he broke something or other punching that wall. He, uh, you know, this is uh, this is what I mean. Kudos to Michael Chapman. Uh, De Niro sitting in darkness here and not in the shaft of you know the, just the I think the way those shafts of light come down are just just right. Um, On my uh, subtitles, it says, um, I'm not an animal, which, uh, of course, pays off the, the animal thing at the beginning. But uh, I'm not an animal. I'm not that guy, and which I think is a very modern or contemporary uh, way of, of saying, uh, you know, I'm not that guy. People say that today. Like, I'm not that guy. I'm not that I guess people started saying that kind of stuff in the 90s. You know, I'm not I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy who does that. Uh, there was a Seinfeld episode where he's... Uh, I'm not... Something about mustaches where he's... Uh, uh, I'm not an orgy guy. I'd have to get a mustache. Uh, but... 
I just find it interesting that he says that in in the cell. Um, so this this is quite a a. Uh, I don't think they emphasize it very much, but and this is very true to the the clubs you see or the bars and there's still bars like this in New York and Manhattan especially where it's just a long hallway. It's just a long corridor. It's almost like the size, the whole place is the size of a bowling lane or like two bowling lanes put together, you know, um, uh, and the idea here is that he's, he's gone downhill and this is the only way he can make money. So he had his own club before, which evident, I think he had to liquidate it for legal, um, to pay legal, uh, fees or something. It was something like that. But, um, so now he's, he doesn't have his own place. He's playing dives like this and he's, uh, you know, the, the rather, um, saucy, uh, uh, lady singer that appears with him. He's gonna, uh, hook up with her. And, and this is, this is what his life has become, uh, very good that, uh, and I think this was in an earlier draft um, of before they got to the shooting script. Uh, although I'm not sure, it's one of those things I don't recall. Um, but I, I like that the film doesn't. At this point, the film is looking to to get this stuff done quickly, and um, it doesn't dwell too much on him down and out or or him uh, hitting rock bottom. You know, uh, now that graffiti they walk by is very clearly, uh, you know, that doesn't seem like 1940s graffiti. I don't know. Or 19, uh, circa 1960, maybe. I won't say anything about those cars other than those are nice old cars there. <laughs> They age Pesci real nice. It's amazing what a mustache will do. See, now this is the scene that Pesci plays. That really, I love it. It's interesting that he tells him, aren't you going to forgive and forget? You know? And he says, you're my brother, which is what Joey told him when they had the altercation. I mean, it's it's really quite, I can't help but uh, still kind of now, even though I'm talking through everything and I don't have sound, I, I, you know, I'm going off subtitles. I, I still kind of get moved by this. Um, you know, because this is really how it goes, you know, uh, You think of that line, uh, Charlie, the mob boss, told Pesci when he had the thing with uh, the Frank Vincent character, right? You think of uh, him saying, uh, Patty Chayefsky, Rod Serling, Shakespeare. Um, you, you think of no grudges. That's the most important thing. No grudges. Here again, the texture of the room, the little details of the room. Those old style hangers. So you see where where we are, and through through um, the things that he has to interact with when he's there, the crusty old light switch. 
in the Schrader draft, I think this thing here, this on the waterfront, Brando, um, where he, he he rehearses the uh, Brando speech that he gives to Rod Steiger and on the waterfront. Um, and originally, I think I think Schrader had it as uh, uh, a Falstaff uh, soliloquy, or maybe I think it was Richard the Third. Uh, yeah, that would make sense because um, the Shakespeare play Richard the Third is about um, a very conniving and and uh, deformed uh, King Richard uh, who is. Um, uh, there's kind of an "I am not an animal" thing to that, I guess. My horse, my horse, a kingdom for a horse. Uh, which is a line that will actually ha- it actually is still here, but um, they they instead used on the waterfront, and I think the rationale was that it would be more accessible uh, to American audiences. It must be hard for someone like De Niro. Well, I guess you know he's one of those 1970s era method actors, and. Um, so maybe it's easy because he's in character here, full. He's in full character mode, but um, not that it's a light switch or anything that you can go on and off. But but um, it must be hard for someone of his skill to to say that Marlon Brando uh, monologue from On the Waterfront to say it so badly the way Lamada would have. You know, uh, maybe he had the real Lamada perform it for him. Now. Uh, I think I said in another commentary about Scorsese and not being the best director with endings. Um, I like this ending and I don't like it. Here's what I like is what you're watching here. He's, you know, going to the body, revving himself up like he was uh, in the dressing room in that long tracking shot, right? (laughs) He was doing that, uh, hitting his brother with the body protector. That's what he was doing before he, he had to go out for a big fight. But now he's in this dive of uh, this rather humiliating um, nightclub that he has to play. Uh, it's rather humiliating, but he still revs himself he's, as if he's going out for a fight. Um, and it just cuts to black after he, after he does that. Um, I like that ending. I hate... I'll talk about this here, um, uh, but I hate this, what you're seeing on screen now. Um, this biblical quote that Scorsese uh, inserts that has, uh, it's not even a very interesting translation of, uh, of the Bible that he uses. You know, you think he'd use the King James, but um, to uh, that he, um, you saw the... Uh, inscription there, I guess, uh, the um, dedication there that, that he dedicates to his, what was uh, a professor of his who had died uh, just before the movie, while the movie was in production. Where's Robbie Robertson's credit for the music? Uh, oh, I guess that was just the Muscagney credit that went there uh, for the Muscagney music, but... Um, he, he puts this biblical quote, I was blind, but now I can see, indicating that um, this um, film professor, and it was Thelma Schoonmaker's professor as well, I believe, um, that this film professor had helped him to see uh, clearly what his artistic, artistic ambitions were. Fuck knows. But uh, to me, it, it kind of ruins the ending of the movie because it, it just has nothing, you know, put it in the opening credits. 
because then the movie can end and we don't or put it at the end of the end credits you know i mean don't insert it in you know the the feeling that a movie's ending has to leave you with is 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 it, you know i think most people who read that probably didn't know how to how to take it you know he, he's the director is dedicating it to a teacher but uh i think if it comes right at the beginning before the opening title sequence um we forget it by now and it doesn't it doesn't modify how we understand the ending and the ending is much more stark and easy you know when he's punching and it just cuts to black quick and um i say just roll credits at that point Uh, and i i think people uh you know I i i think it's true he does have a thing with endings because that just doesn't doesn't work for me but evidently uh from what i understand the the person in question who had died the the uh, professor um was someone very uh close to schoonmaker and scorsese and perhaps that clouded scorsese's judgment he felt he had to insert it into his ending uh which leads me to believe that maybe he wasn't really thinking about the ending in a way that he... I mean, I, I think it works until you get that biblical quote. It's just like... And it's this long biblical quote where you have to... Where, you know, you could just have, I was blind, but now I see, you know. but And then the Pharisees said unto him, you know, it's this... It's this... Me, it's this uh, I just... I, can't, I still can't believe he did that on... Um, what is such a great movie but alas there you go produced and arranged by robbie robertson there i didn't even talk about him because i'm not uh i don't know so much about music but um look it's easy to see why this is uh as well respected as it is i think that um for my money i would uh you know people like uh taxi driver the best um it seems uh, people uh, people often say that's his, his best film i would put this ahead of taxi driver on on my own list um uh but i hope it's been uh, a fun uh exploration of the movie for you uh and uh we will continue with the scorsese series coming up and and um uh, we'll uh, have a bunch of other uh, uh, movies aside from that, too, uh, that we'll have time to record uh, uh, in the coming weeks. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.